Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Blog Talk Radio. Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to Addiction Treatments That Work. I'm your host, Kenneth Anderson. Today it is July 16th of 2015, and our guest today is Johan Hari. He's the author of Chasing the Scream, The First and Last Days of the War on Drugs. We're going to bring him on in just a minute. First, let me do a little blurb for our website and our book. Our website is hamsnetwork.org. We are a free-of-charge lay-led support group for people who want to make any positive change in their drinking habits, from safer drinking to reduced drinking to quitting altogether. Our book is called How to Change Your Drinking, A Harm Reduction guide to alcohol it's available from hamsnetwork.org slash book our guest johan hari is with us right now how are you doing this afternoon i guess it's evening in london it is it's an uncharacteristically warm and lovely evening so yeah i'm doing pretty well thanks Kenneth. well it's great to have you here i've read most of your book and it is just an excellent book it is so important uh, what prompted you to write about the war on drugs Oh, thank you for what you said. Um, I guess it was a mixture of things. One of my earliest memories is of trying to wake up one of my relatives and, and not being able to, and I was um, too small then to understand why, but as I got older, I realized we had addiction in my family, including later other of my relatives, and I guess it was partly that, and then I realized we were coming up to the, about four years ago when I started working on the book, I realized we were coming up to this year, the 100th anniversary of basically the beginning of the war on drugs, the moment when drugs are first banned in the United States and Britain is then imposed on the rest of the world. And even though I thought of myself as someone who knew quite a lot about this subject, partly because, you know, I'd lived through it, partly because as a journalist I'd written about it quite a lot, I suddenly realized that there were loads of just really basic questions I didn't know the answer to, like, why did we go to war against drug users and drug addicts 100 years ago? Why do we carry on when it doesn't seem to be working? What are the actual alternatives like in practice? And what really causes drug use and drug addiction? And I didn't want to understand the answers to that. Uh, in a kind of, I think part of the problem is the way we discuss this is so often abstract. You know, We talk as if it's like a kind of philosophical argument. I didn't want to do mm-hmm, that. Mm-hmm. I wanted to sit with real people whose lives have been changed one way or another by this. So I ended up going on a journey across loads of countries, 30,000 miles, and really just sitting with people, you know, an amazing array of people from a transgender crack dealer in Brownsville, Brooklyn, to um, you know, a hitman for the deadliest Mexican drug cartel, to the only scientist, uh, sorry, a scientist who spends a lot of time feeding hallucinogens to mongooses to see what will happen, uh, to the only country that's ever decriminalized all drugs. And I guess the main thing I, I realized is almost everything we think we know about this subject is wrong. Drugs are not what we think they are. Addiction is not what we think it is. The drug war is not what we've seen on our, our TV screens for the past hundred years. And the alternatives to the drug war aren't what we think they are either. Mm-hmm. Well, let's start with a big question. Uh, what's wrong with criminalizing drugs? Well, I think it's a range of things. Um, the biggest element of it, and the most catastrophic, is that when you ban drugs, they don't disappear. They're transferred from the people who used to control them, who are doctors and pharmacists, to armed criminal gangs. And those armed criminal gangs control, cause a huge amount of violence because of the prohibition. The best way to explain it is, it's really simple. If you step out of this interview now and you go to your local liquor store and you try to steal a bottle of vodka, they'll call the cops. So that vodka store doesn't need to be threatening, it doesn't need to be intimidating, they've got the power of the law and the potential force of the law behind them. If you step out of this interview and you try to steal some cannabis or some cocaine, obviously the guy selling that in your neighborhood can't call the cops, the cops would arrest them. 
So they've got to be violent and intimidating. They've got to fight you back. Now, if you're a dealer, you don't want to be having a fight every day, right? So you've got to establish a reputation for being such a badass that no one will dare to do that. And, that, and also, you establish your control of your patch through fighting off other gangs, through violence, and so on. Milton Friedman, the Nobel Prize-winning economist, calculated there are an additional 10,000 murders every year in the United States as a direct result of that prohibition. Now, that's bad enough in the United States. If you go to a place like where I went in northern Mexico, it's turned that into hell on earth. Um, so I think it's, and I tell this mainly in the book through the story of this extraordinary transgender crack dealer I got to know over three years in, in Brownsville, Brooklyn, who was conceived when his his mother, um, who was a crack addict, was raped by his father, who was an NYPD officer. He's a, he's a child of the drug war in the purest sense. And through the story of a teenage hitman for the deadliest Mexican drug cartel, Rosalio Retta, who between the ages of 13 and 17 butchered and beheaded about 70 people. The really important thing to understand is all that violence is preventable, right? And if you want to know why, ask yourself, where are the violent alcohol dealers today? Is, does the head of Heineken send someone to go and shoot the head of Smirnoff in the face? Does mm-hmm. the drink style at Walmart go and blow up your local liquor store? No. But under mm-hmm. alcohol prohibition, that's exactly what happened. So to me, there are many aspects of why this is the, the, the criminalization is a disaster. But to me, that violence is the biggest one. And just to say one little fact about that, which I think every American citizen should know, Michelle Leon Hart, the head of the Drug Enforcement Agency, the main drug war body in America, a person whose wages you pay, was asked in a Senate testimony about the 60,000 civilians who've been killed in Mexico in the last seven years in the drug war violence. And she said, these were her exact words, it's a sign of success in the war on drugs. That should be a national international scandal. You know, she had to resign over a petty corruption scandal in her bureau, not over that. Um, And that tells you a lot. Now, there's a lot of people that uh, say, uh, well, we can't legalize drugs or everybody will use more drugs. Everybody will use drugs if we legalize drugs. Uh, Is that true? No. And the important thing to understand is there's nothing theoretical about this, there's nothing abstract about it. I've been to the places that have tried the alternatives and I've seen what happens. So uh, let's look first at Portugal. In the year 2000, Portugal had uh, one of the worst drug problems in Europe. 1% of the population was addicted to heroin, which is kind of incredible. And every year they tried the American way more. They arrested and imprisoned more people. And every year the problem got worse. And one day the prime minister and the leader of the opposition got together and they basically said, look, we can't go on like this. What are we going to do? So they, um, they decided to appoint a panel of scientists and doctors. And they said to this panel of scientists and doctors, please go and look at all the best research, figure out what would genuinely turn this problem around, and we'll agree in advance that we'll do whatever you recommend. So it just took it out of politics. Panel went away and it came back a year and a half later and they said, decriminalize all drugs from cannabis to crack. But, and this is the crucial next step, take all the money we used to spend on arresting and imprisoning drug addicts and users and spend it instead on turning their lives around. And it's interesting, it's not really what we think of as drug treatment in Britain. So they do have some rehab, they do do some psychological support that does have some value. But the biggest thing they did was actually the opposite of what we do. They um, set up a huge program of job creation for addicts. So say you used to be a mechanic, but go to a garage and they'll say, if you employ this guy for a year, We'll pay half his wages. They set up a huge program of microloans so addicts could set up small businesses for themselves. The goal was to make sure that every addict in Portugal had something to get out of bed for in the morning. And the results are in. It's been 15 years. Um, it, uh, the the um, injecting drug use is down by 50%, 50%. Overdose deaths are massively down. Teenage drug use has remained the same. Overall, drug use has very slightly increased by 6%, but bear in mind they also, in those 15 years, have been plunged into a massive recession completely unrelated to this policy because of the terrible economic crash particularly badly affected Portugal. Uh, One of the ways you know this policy has worked so well is that virtually nobody in Portugal wants to go back. I went and interviewed Juan Figuera, who's the top drug cop in Portugal. He uh, led the opposition to the decriminalization, and he said to me, the exact words are in the book, he said to me, Everything I said would happen didn't happen. 
and everything the other side said would happen did. And he talked about far from leading to it. You know, he'd said at the time, of course, there'll be a massive explosion of drug use, which is a perfectly reasonable concern. And he said, you know, none of that happened. He talked about how he felt ashamed that he'd spent 20 years arresting and harassing drug users. And he hoped the whole world follows Portugal's example. Now, it's important to understand that's decriminalization, not legalization. Decriminalization is where you stop punishing users, but the drugs are still supplied by armed criminal gangs. Legalization is where you open up a legal route for people to get those drugs. Now, obviously, a lot of Americans are aware that in, uh, heroically the people of Colorado and Washington and now several other states voted to legalize marijuana. It's a model of legalization that's very familiar to us. It happens all the time with alcohol. You go to a licensed store. You have to be an adult. There's very serious penalties for selling to children, as there should be. Um, and, and the product is taxed. It's not controlled by armed criminal gangs and so on. That model is working really well in Colorado. 55% of people voted for the legalization in Colorado. Now they've seen it in practice for a year and a half. 70% of people in Colorado support it. That's, you know, when people see it in practice. But it's also important to understand you can legalize other drugs. I went to Switzerland where they've legalized heroin. Now, Important to understand, and Switzerland, by the way, is a very conservative country. That's not like San Francisco legalizing heroin. That's like Utah legalizing heroin. And it's important to understand um, how, how and why it happened. So legalization doesn't mean just anyone having access to anything. That's what we have at the moment, right? When they wanted to talk about why to change the laws in Switzerland, what they explained is prohibition. Some people think that legalization means anarchy. What we have now with the drug war is anarchy. We have unknown mm -hmm. criminals selling unknown chemicals to unknown users all in the dark, and there's nothing we can do about it, right? Legalization mm -hmm. is a way of restoring order to that anarchy, and it means different things for different drugs. I don't know in the state you're in, but I'm pretty sure where you are, it's legal to own a dog, a monkey, and a lion. But you, you would have to pass through different hoops to get to the, you know, you're sure you can just go and buy a dog. Mm -hmm. For a monkey, you'd probably need a license. For a lion, they'd probably come and inspect wherever you're going to keep it. You'd have to you know, prove a lot of things before you'd be allowed to have a lion. In a similar way, it's not like the heroin is not sold in the equivalent of CVS. The way it works is if you've got an addiction problem with heroin, you refer to your doctor. Your doctor refers you to a clinic. You go to that clinic, and you are given your heroin. Um, and you're, of course, monitored by doctors when you use it. You're not allowed to take it out with you. And again, the results have been really extraordinary. There's been a massive fall in street crime. Do you know how many people have died from overdoses since they did this? Heroin overdoses? Zero. Not one. Not a single mm -hmm. person. Compare that to the epidemic in the United States at the moment. And again, there are other positive effects. The Hello, are you there? We're going to wait for just a minute and see if uh, Johan Hari will call back in. Um, he said he might have a little problem with his phone, but he should be back with us in a little bit. Um, we want you all to go uh, over to YouTube and check out. We have new videos out about the 17 elements of hams. Um, so you can check those out on YouTube. We have some new testimonials available. Um, that uh, We've got a new testimonial available from Stanton Peel. Let me talk a little bit about the HAMS program while we're waiting for uh, Johan to call back in. Um, we, the HAMS program is, consists of 17 elements. The first is a cost-benefit analysis of talk about the pros and cons of your drinking. Uh, he's back here with us. Hello, Johan. Hi, I'm so sorry about that. My phone is, um, is malfunctioning. Yeah, so just to finish the point, can you hear me okay? Yeah, you're good now. Yeah, great. So just to finish the point about the heroin program in Switzerland, you know, I'm a Swiss citizen as well as a British citizen, and because um, my dad's from there. And Switzerland, as I say, is a really conservative country. My grandmother got the vote in 1978, right? This is really, really not San Francisco. And yet Swiss people have voted twice now in referenda to keep heroin legal by 70%, because when they saw that alternative in practice, they saw that the things people totally understandably fear about legalization don't happen and a huge number of positive things happen that's not to say there aren't still problems of course there are but the problems are significantly reduced mm -hmm, mm -hmm. yeah there's uh, two models we can look at and some people refer to the one model as medicalization where you make drugs available by prescription which of course is marijuana in california 
and the other is the full legalization where you can just buy it like you can buy alcohol or cigarettes. Yeah, I don't really think of those as opposing. I think they're just different things for different drugs, you know? Um, well, they're, I don't think they're, those they're are different. Huge uh, different people advocate for full legalization. I'm one of the people that advocates for full legalization of everything. Although I'm not, I'm certainly not opposed to people that want to medicalize it. Uh, I would totally back anybody that says, you know, prescription heroin in the U S absolutely. I would actually like full legalization, but you know, it's a fine distinction. Mm -mm. I think it's worth saying as well. And this is important. Most, as you know very well, Kenneth, most, the vast majority of drug use is not to meet an addiction, but for <laughs> recreational pleasure, right? Uh, for instance, yeah. even the UN Office of Drug Control, um, the UNODC, who are the main drug war body in the world, even they admit, you know, um, 90% of, of uh, drug use is, is what they call non-problematic, which means it doesn't damage your health and it doesn't cause addiction. Um, which seems like a very high number to a lot of people, and it did to me when I first looked at it. But the more I looked at it, and it's, by the way, the very high figures even for things like meth. And yet, mm-hmm. it's partly a product of the drug war that, if you think about it, with alcohol, we see non-problematic alcohol use all around us because people talk about it openly, right? You may well have friends who say on Facebook, oh, I had a great bottle of wine last night, or I mm-hmm. went out on Saturday mm-hmm. night and got hammered on vodka. It would, you'd be very, it would be a very foolish friend of yours who put on Facebook, I had a great line of coke last night. Or, you know, this Saturday I'm going to go out and, you know, use some meth, right? That would be, they would be very, they might lose their job, they might, well, you know, someone might call the police. Um, certainly a lot of their friends would think badly of them. So partly the drug war has created a, um, a distorted picture of drug use that then fuels the drug war itself. Now, this is not to say... The 10% of people who are harmed, you know, that should be the they should be at the forefront of our minds. They are, they should be the main focus because obviously that's yes we talk about some of my family. Um, but it's important to understand why 90% of people are able to use drugs and 10% of people are without becoming addicted or harming their health and 10% of people aren't. And it's important to understand it's not about quantity of use, right? There are loads of among mm-hmm. there are loads of people who use loads of drugs but don't become addicted. And I think of all the things that I learned from my book, that was the thing that most surprised me is the stuff about addiction. And I, I really, this is, you know, if you had said to me four years ago, what causes, say, heroin addiction? I think mm. I would have looked at you like you were a bit of an idiot. And I would have said, well, stupid question. Obviously, heroin causes heroin addiction, right? And <laughs> um, we've been told the mm-hmm. story for 100 years about what causes heroin, what causes addiction generally, not just with heroin that's become part mm. of our common sense. We think that mm. if the next 20 people to walk past your studio all used heroin together for 20 days, on day 21, they'd all be heroin addicts because mm-hmm. there are chemical hooks in heroin that their bodies would start to physically need and physically crave, and that's what addiction is, right? The first thing mm-hmm. that I learned mm-hmm. is the fact there's something not right about that story. So I spoke to a lot of doctors, and they explained to me if I step out of this interview now and I'm hit by a car and I break my hip, I'll be taken to hospital mm-hmm. and I'll be given loads of diamorphine for the pain. Diamorphine mm-hmm. is heroin. It's actually much mm-hmm. stronger heroin than you'll ever get on the streets because the stuff you buy from a dealer is only about 20% heroin and the rest is just contaminated crap. Whereas, obviously, the doctor gives you the 100% pure stuff. Um, and if so anyone listening to this, if you've... Um, you know, if your grandmother has had a hip replacement operation, she's been given a lot of heroin. Now, if this happens in hospitals all over the world, if what we think about addiction is right, that it's caused by the chemical hooks, what should happen to those people in hospitals who are given loads of the drug? They're exposed to all the same chemical hooks as your addict on the street. And yet, there have been studies of this that I looked at it very closely. They don't become addicted. And when I first mm-hmm. learned that, it just seemed so weird to me. I didn't know how to process it or what to do with it until I went and interviewed an extraordinary man called Bruce Alexander, who's a professor in Vancouver. And he explained to mm-hmm. me, the theory of addiction we have comes partly from a series of experiments that were done earlier in the 20th century. They're really simple and easy experiments. Your listeners can do them at home tonight if they're feeling a little bit sadistic. You get a rat and you put it in a cage. 
and you give it two water bottles. One is just water, and the other is water laced with either heroin or cocaine. If you do that, the rat will almost always prefer the drug water and almost always kill itself. You might remember a famous Partnership for Drug Free America advert that used this experiment and showed a dead rat at the end of it. And in the 70s, Professor Alexander comes along and says, well, hang on a minute. We're putting this rat in an empty cage and it's got nothing to do except use these drugs. Let's do this differently. So he built a, a different kind of cage that he called Rat Park, which is basically like paradise for rats. So they've got loads of cheese, they've got loads of colored balls, they've got loads of friends, they can have loads of sex, and they've got both the water bottles, the, the normal water and the drugged water. But this is the fascinating thing. In Rat Park, they don't like the drugged water. They almost never use it. None of them ever use it compulsively. None of them ever overdose. Now, there's really interesting human examples of this that I can point to, but Professor Alexander found is, oh, what if, what if addiction is not primarily about the chemical hooks? What if it's about connection? Human beings have an innate need to bond and connect. And when we're happy and healthy, we'll bond and connect with each other. But if you can't do that because you're isolated or traumatized or beaten down by life, you will bond and connect with something that gives you some sense of relief. That might be gambling, that might be pornography, that might be cocaine, it might be cannabis, it might be alcohol, it could be anything. But you will bond and connect with something that gives you some sense of relief because that's our nature. And I think there's huge implications for this. The most obvious is for the war on drugs, right? In Arizona, I went out with a group of women who were forced to go out on a, a chain gang wearing T-shirts saying I was a drug addict and forced to dig graves while members of the public jeered at them. When they're taken back to prison, some of them are put in a, a solitary block called The Hole, which I was taken to see, and it is in fact a hole. And I looked at this, these women being treated this way, and I suddenly thought, ah, oh, this is the closest you could possibly get to literally reenacting that experiment that guaranteed addiction in rats. And this is what we're doing, thinking it will stop these women being addicted. Of course, when those women get out of prison, uh, they'll have criminal records, they'll find it very hard to ever work again in the legal economy. We put enormous barriers between addicts and being able to reconnect with the society. And then, you know, we're surprised it doesn't work. A doctor in Canada, Gabor Marte, said to me, you know, if you wanted to design a system that would make addiction worse, you would design the war on drugs. So there's partly that implication. I actually think there's an even deeper implication that goes way beyond drug policy. You know, I think it, it, you know, um, Bruce Alexander, the guy who designed the Rat Park experiment, talks a lot about, mm -hmm. you know, we talk all the time about individual recovery, and that has real value. But we need to talk a lot more about social recovery. Something's gone wrong with us, not just as individuals, but as a group. And I think addiction is just one symptom of this deeper and wider malaise. For a lot of people, our society looks a whole lot more like that isolated cage and a whole lot less like Rat Park. You know, the, the whole way we live, it's one of the most isolated societies there's ever been. There's a very interesting study that looked at this. It looked at how um, the average number of close friends an American can call on in a crisis has been deteriorating since the 1950s. And the average amount of floor space in their homes has been gradually increasing. And I think that's really a metaphor for the kind of trade-off we've made as a culture. We've swapped, you know, uh, floor space for friends. We've swapped stuff mm -hmm. for connections. And we're a very mm -hmm. cut-off society. And one of the ways some people will deal with that is through being, you know, chronically intoxicated. Other people will deal with it in different ways. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I want to make two points really quickly. Um, one, uh, Bruce Alexander, we had him on the show uh, about a oh, year or so ago. Yes, so everybody can go into the archive and listen to that interview as well. And also about the, the prison chain gangs. You know, I'm just, uh, I remember several years ago on television, one of the news shows, the major network news shows, like I can't remember 60 Minutes or Dateline or whichever one it was, mm. You know, they were showing us this this woman's chain gang, and the, they were trying to tell us how much the women loved being on the chain gang and how they all volunteered for it. And I was sitting there looking at that, and I said, this is bullshit. I know this is not true. This I'm being lied to again by the media. Um, 
and I'm not surprised at all to hear your report of the absolute horrors that go on there. And uh, you have a story in your book about a woman that actually died in the, was baked to death in the desert there. It's one of the most awful, uh, you know, I went to a lot of terrible places and saw some terrible things. But of all the things, it's one of the things that most haunts me. When I went to Arizona, uh, there's a wonderful person called Donna Leon Ham who works on prison reform in Arizona. And I said to her, you know, a question I ask a lot of places, tell me about something that shocked you or surprised you in the time you've been doing your work. So Donna went down this big long list and somewhere down the list she said, there was the time they put that woman in a cage and cooked her, that was quite bad. And then she she carried on and I said, sorry Donna, could we go back a second? There was a woman called Marsha Powell who was a chronic crack and meth addict who kept being put in prison either for using crack on, crack and meth or for prostituting herself to get them. And she was very clearly mentally disturbed. You read the police transcripts with her and she's clearly profoundly mentally ill as the as the courts confirmed, um, and as the psychiatrist confirmed, but they still put her in prison. And one day, they um, she woke up in Perryville Prison in Arizona, and she was suicidal. And the guards took her and put her in a cage, and it's called a holding cage. It's an outdoor cage exposed to the desert. And they left her there. And she cried and she messed herself and she begged for water and the guards mocked her. And in the end, she collapsed. And by the time they called an ambulance, she had been cooked and she died that night. And in Chasing the Scream, I told the story of them. I went on a, a journey to find out who Marsha Powell had really been and the story of her life. And I tracked down her, her former partner. And um, it, it was really a heartbreaking process. What I would say as well about the, the you're totally right about the 60 Minutes thing. It's very interesting when I went there. It's interesting, Tent City, that, that, that particular prison, you feel kind of guilty when you're there because you're aware that this pantomime of cruelty is being staged for you, right? Um, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And it's very uncomfortable. And the women initially give you this nonsense where they say, yeah, yeah, we chose to do it, we know we deserve it and all of that. And then I was actually with a filmmaker friend of mine, Rachel Seifert. And when the camera was away from these women, I could speak to them, you know, just one-on-one. I was recording it, but I could speak the audio. Um, and they would say, oh, of course, that's complete rubbish. We haven't chosen to be here. It's ridiculous. Why would someone choose to be on a chain gang when they've been humiliated in public? It's ridiculous. Um, so it's, it's, it's an extraordinarily barbaric thing. But the only thing I would say about that is it's tempting to look at Joe Arpaio and everything that happens in Arizona and go, you know, I think this is like a freakish outlier. And clearly it's the most pointed tip of the spear of mass incarceration in the United States. But actually... You know, pretty much the whole system's like that. You know, the, the element mm-hmm. of the public theatricality is, is is not there. But, you know, you go to the most liberal part of the United States, one of them, New York City, Rikers Island, you know, I spoke to plenty of people who've been in Rikers. Rikers is pro- probably worse than being in prison in Maricopa County. You know, the, the, the endemic rape in, in prisons in, in Rikers, the guards beating children, a you know, mass and endemic violence against children who are imprisoned in Rikers Island. The entire American mass incarceration system is, and I cite a figure in the book, which I think is kind of extraordinary. Um, the United States has such a massive prison population relative to any other country that has ever been, including communist tyrannies even, like Maoist China. And rape is so endemic in those prisons that the United States today is almost certainly the first human society ever where more men have been raped than women. Mm-hmm. You know, and then mm-hmm. a huge amount of that, of course, the drug war. You know, people in prison for the drug war. Mm-hmm. And you know, uh, the the big call today that I keep hearing, um, a lot of people are saying, you know, treatment, not prison. But there's a huge range of treatment out there, and in the United States. Some of the treatments are as bad as prisons. I mean, there are stories of uh, some of the U.S. therapeutic communities for teenagers. They've locked the kids in dog cages in Mexico and left them breaking out in the Mexican sun. You know, uh, you know treatment is not the same worldwide. Treatment is, that you talked about in Switzerland um, and in Portugal, I think, these are like the ideals that we should be pursuing. And tell me a little bit more about treatment uh, that you saw in Europe. I think what I think what you just said is 
super important. And um, I think we need to really reclaim the word treatment because, um, firstly, coerced treatment doesn't work, right? So if what you're saying mm-hmm. is, I'm not going to put you in prison, I'm going to send you to, I'm not going to put you in Rikers or Tent City, but I'm going to put you in a different place where you're going to be detained and will have to participate in what they call treatment. Well, that is mm-hmm. a prison, right? It may be a slightly mm-hmm. nicer prison. It's somewhat better than going to Rikers Island, I'm sure, but it's still a prison and it doesn't work, right? Coerced treatment mm-hmm. does not work. There's overwhelming mm-hmm. evidence from across the world. You know, I've been to places where they do coerced treatment, like Sweden and Vietnam. It doesn't work, right? The figures are overwhelming. The relapse rate are, is appalling. If it's not coming from within you, you won't be able to change, right? And of course, if what you're doing mm-hmm. is you're putting people in a, think about Rat Park, right? If what you're doing is you're taking someone out of the isolated, their isolated cage, putting them even in quite good treatment, and that's rare in the United States, but let's go into the thought experiment, there is good treatment, um, and then putting them back in their terrible isolated cage. Well, what different, you know, I mean, it's a nice holiday, it's a nice vacation from the trauma, but if you're just going back into it, of course you're going to relapse back into addiction, which is why... Um, treatment in the United States has an absolutely abysmal success rate. Even quite good mm-hmm. rehabs have a terrible success rate. If you look mm-hmm. at um, you know, reducing drug use and, of course, uh, all becoming abstinent, the success figures are really poor because it's based on the wrong theory of addiction that you just need to be kind of separated from the drug. And it's based on, you know, um, yeah, it's based on a series of basic errors. Now, that's not, that's n- none of that is, what, what you're talking about, you're right. There's a huge range of actively sadistic rehabs. I had, I won't say who it was, but I had a very disturbing conversation in the course of promoting the book with these people who run a rehab centre in LA, who, I mean, I was just horrified the the use of shame and stigma, the the whole way they talked about addicts and, and addiction. I mean, it, it was very disconcerting. Um, so I think you're absolutely right to highlight that. Now, addiction works very different. Um, there's some bad treatment places in Europe, I don't want to say, but but it's nothing like that. Um, mm-hmm. So if we look at Switzerland and Portugal, which are the two most impressive ones. If you go to the, the, the clinics in, in Portugal, um, you know, I remember the first day I went to this wonderful clinic in Lisbon. I can never remember Portuguese, <laughs> Portuguese name, so I don't want to say it because I was there wrong, but the details are interesting on the screen. Yeah, what they were doing is they were working with these addicts who were not in any way coerced. They were there and leave as they wanted. And they were doing things like working on articulating emotion. One of the things the, 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 a lot of addicts found very difficult was articulating emotion without the protection of, of you know, being intoxicated so you don't feel so bad. And they were talking about just playing games where they could learn to express mild emotions and redevelop the kind of muscles and sinews of emotion um and a lot of it is just very practical help it's very hard to get sober if you you know have very insecure housing or if you have a terrible job that's deadening and miserable Mm -hmm. um so a lot of it is about getting people so they have other things in their lives you know um Mm -hmm. so they can bear to be present in their lives more Mm -hmm. Does that make sense? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I've answered that myself. Right? A good example. Um, an interesting example is, um, think about um, the Vietnam War. 20% of American troops in Vietnam were using huge amounts of heroin. And if you look at the news reports from the time, there's this real panic because they were thinking, my God, you know, we're going to have hundreds of thousands of junkies on the streets of the United States when they rotate back home. And what happened, mm-hmm. there was a very good study that followed them home by the Archives of General Psychiatry, um, they overwhelmingly, 95% of them just stopped. They didn't go into withdrawal. They didn't go to rehab. They just stopped. Because mm-hmm. now, if you believe the old theories about addiction, it's all about chemical hooks and brain hijacking and all of that nonsense. That makes absolutely no sense, right? But if you mm-hmm. um, if you um, understand Professor Alexander's theory of addiction, it makes perfect sense. If you're taken out of a hellish mm-hmm. pestilential jungle where you don't want to be and you could be forced to kill or die at any moment, and you go back to a nice life in Wichita, Kansas, with your friends and your family. Well, of course you're, you know, you want to be present in your life, you know. And I think mm-hmm. I was thinking as you were saying that about rehab, I was also thinking, you know, there's a really dangerous thing that's done by the um, some of the advocates of coerced treatment and some of the advocates of rehab. Not all, 
in the United States, which is the, the, the abuse, this, this concept, the abuse of the idea of addiction as a brain disease and the promotion mm-hmm. of this as, as, a, as a, a theory, which is, is false. There's, there's, the evidence is that it is not correct. Based on a series of errors, it is true. If you do brain scans of people who are chronic addicts, their brains look different to people whose brains who are not chronic addicts, right? Mm-hmm. Whatever we do, it changes the structure of our brains. If I play a huge amount of video games, my not an, not an addict, my brain will look different to someone who's does, who's, who doesn't, right? And London taxi mm-hmm. drivers memorize the map of London to pass an exam to get a license to be a taxi driver. When you do brain scans of them, the part of the brain relating to spatial awareness is much bigger and more developed than my brain or your brain would be. That doesn't mean mm-hmm. that London taxi drivers have a brain disease. That means they use mm-hmm. their brain differently. If I started lifting loads of weights, my arms would get bigger. That wouldn't mean I had an arm disease. It would mean I was doing something mm-hmm. different with my arms, right? And this mm-hmm. idea that by looking at the brain scans of addicts and pointing out that they are somewhat different, that means there is an underlying brain disease. Firstly, it gets the idea of causation wrong, right? That you have mm-hmm. to look at when did they start having different brains? Well, amazingly enough, it was after they started behaving differently, not before. And this idea that it's a, a, a brain disease, chronic brain disease, doesn't account for the fact that the vast majority of people, especially the vast majority of addicts will stop, and the vast majority mm-hmm. of them just stop of their own accord. And I remember saying mm-hmm. to some of these scientists, you know, uh, I remember saying to Robert DuPont, who's the founder of NIDA, the main kind of drug war um, research body in the world, it's funny to call it kind of, um, you know, brain hijacking because like it would be a funny sort of hijacking where the passengers could just walk off the plane at the end of it you know it's funny <laughs> people talk about it, slavery it'd be funny to call it sla- you know frederick Douglass couldn't just walk off the plantation right like that that mm-hmm, they, mm-hmm. people could just end it then they're not slaves and they, mm-hmm. he had no good answers you know mm-hmm. in that conjunction that i want to i want to mention no, quickly no, sorry, uh, last week, our guest on the show was Mark Lewis, who has a brand new book out called The Biology of Desire, which is a great book that goes into all the neuroscience. And he talks about the neuroscience of spontaneous remission. He talks about the neuroscience of choice, which is what it's all about. When people choose to not use drugs anymore, that's when they stop using. It might take a while, a few relapses, but that's how it works. You choose to stop or moderate your use, and that's how you get out of addictive behavior. Yeah, I think it's important to say, because I haven't read Mark Lewis's book and I'm very excited to, it's important to say, when we talk about choice, human beings make choices in contexts, right? So it's not like Mm -hmm. there's a danger that could feed a kind of, and I'm sure this isn't Mark Lewis's intent or your intent, Mm -hmm. there's a danger Mm -hmm. that you could feed a right-wing argument, which is like, oh, addiction isn't real, they could just stop. They just need to kind of pull themselves together. They need to, you know, have, have more willpower. They're just weak or flawed people. That's not the case. Human beings make choices mm-hmm. in context. And it's a lot mm-hmm. easier to choose to stop using drugs if what you're doing is you're choosing a better life where, you know, you'll have meaningful work and friends and all those things. If you're trapped in a terrible place with very few options, you, if you're like the rats in that first isolated cage, then you're much less likely to be able to make that choice because your life will frankly be a place that isn't very pleasant to be in so you're going to want to be out of it so i think it's important to understand that in order to make those changes we need to help people to give them better context and better lives add an extra punishment onto the suffering that's making them become addicts right so don't mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. give them criminal records don't you know don't imprison them don't make them suffer all of those things but also, it's exactly what we were talking about before, that bigger social change. It's not a coincidence that Sweden has extremely low levels of addiction when it's a society with a very good welfare state, very strong social bonds, you know, no poverty, um, you know, people are really looked after. And it's not a coincidence that, say, Texas, with very little welfare state and, you know, very little social protection and very poor social bonds has such a high level of addiction, right? This is, this is mm-hmm. so there's the drug war and then there's also the underlying social conditions. Mm-hmm. We also have, um, in the United States, I mean, the primary treatment model, the dominant treatment model in the U.S. from the get-go back in the 1940s has been the 12-step program, which says that you have a disease that you are powerless over, 
You cannot make a choice to stop it. You have no choice. That's why you have to ask God to intervene to cure your disease, which we certainly don't do with cancer. We don't send people to church and say, ask God to cure your cancer. But that's what we do with addiction. That's still the prominent modality here. And to me, that's crazier than crazier than shit, you know, telling people, ask God to cure your disease because you are powerless. That's nuts. Yeah, I'm an atheist, so um, you don't need to sell me on, on, <laughs> on buying to anybody. It's not a good idea. But what I would say is that it's good. Is there are valuable things in the 12 Steps program, and there are things that I think could be reformed. So the valuable things, and they are real, and they hugely help people I know, is people I love, is the single most valuable thing is it provides a place in which you can connect and bond with people that's a world apart from the drug use and where people will understand mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know, people like you who are trying to stop and who will love you and support you. And when it works well, which is a huge amount of the time, it provides alternative bonding. And, you know, it's hugely admirable that you have these people volunteering, loving and supporting each other. That's great. I think that some of the underlying theology is well-meant but problematic. And Mm -hmm. some of it is good, and some of it is problematic. And I think what we should do is honor the good parts, um, and I certainly wouldn't want to take away... It's important by saying, the way I would phrase it is, there may be a value in expanding the menu of options for addicts, right? There is a value in expanding it. We we shouldn't take anything Mm -hmm. off the menu, right? There are loads of people for whom the 12 Mm -hmm. Steps program has worked, and enrich their lives. And for those people, I have nothing to say but applause and love and congratulations. There are other people who have addiction problems just as real for whom the 12 Steps program is not the best approach. And those mm-hmm. people deserve something more on the menu than one thing. And that's what I would, that, yeah, that's what I would say about that. And, and there are people developing interesting different models, again, going back to the places that... Because um, I think one of the reasons... There are lots of reasons why the 12 Steps program is promoted and some of them are good. One of the bad reasons why the 12 Steps program is promoted is because it's it's easy to fill it with a sense of moral judgment and a kind of mm-hmm. religious theology. That's not. I want to stress again, I'm not talking about everyone who follows the 12 Steps program at all, but there's a degree to which there's a kind of like... A, you know, well, I remember Joe Arpaio saying it to me when I, you know, the dreadful sheriff who runs that monstrous prison in, in Arizona. Um, I'm paraphrasing, but him saying, well, these people could stop. We've got NA, we've got AA. You know, they could stop. Uh, we, we give them NA and AA in prison. Um, and, you know, there, there is a danger that of kind of presenting this as a kind of simplistic cure. And also there's a huge problem, obviously, in medical insurance and things in terms of NA and AA. You know, you can have judges mandating it. You can have... Um, uh, health programs requiring it, and that's disastrous. Co- for the reasons we said, coerced treatment doesn't work. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I want to address one thing. I mean, there's one thing. If you choose to go to AA or NA or one of these 12-step fellowships that are free of charge, they're support groups, I mean, that's your choice. If you like NA, if you like AA, if you want to join the Hare Krishnas to quit using your drugs, I have friends that joined the Hare Krishnas to quit using drugs, too. It's very successful. I wouldn't use that as a treatment modality. What I have the <laughs> objection to is places like Hazelden that will charge you $30,000 for a month of uh, inpatient rehab, basically incarcerated, and you're told you have to believe in God. There's only one way to stop the addiction because you're powerless. You have to believe in God, and you're paying them $30,000 for these essentially AA meetings that you could get for free, and they're also giving you this bullshit of this is the only cure. That that I have a huge yeah, I, objection to. I, I, I very much agree with you that I think the thing that is most problematic about some aspects of NA and AA is when they present themselves as the only solution. That Because that sets up a lot of people to fail. Most people who go through the NA and AA model don't stop. Um and that that's really problematic. It can also, by the way, there are places, it's not everywhere, where NA and AA actually militate against harm reduction. So, you know, you get people in NA, uh, this happens in Europe as well, who say that someone on methadone, you know, uh, is kind of, or indeed prescribed heroin, is still, you know, uh, someone who needs to stop and so on. And it's like, well... 
that's a judgment for the individual to make, right? That, that that's not mm-hmm. that's not for you to make. Um, mm-hmm. And I think I think you're totally right. And I think in terms of I don't know the specific, I don't know enough about the specific rehab centre you mentioned, but I would certainly say a lot of the rehab in the United States is, is an elaborate scam. Not all of it. Some of it's well meant. Mm-hmm. Some of it is really actively, you know, a, a scam. Uh, mm-hmm. and, and, and it's appalling. And it doesn't. And more importantly, it doesn't work. Right? There's there's very mm-hmm. good studies of this. It doesn't work, uh, and we need to look at what does work. Where have they actually had significant reductions in addiction? It's in Portugal. It's in Switzerland. It's the places that have not taken a kind of militant, have in fact, although abstinence is an admirable goal for those who can achieve it, it's the places where they've taken gradually, step by step, love, compassion, um, and that really helped me. You know, we were talking before about. Um, the members of my family and other people close to me who, who've had addiction problems. And it really helped me you know, to think about this because one of the things, again, that NA and AA can but not always promote is it, how it tells us to treat people in our personal life. If you think about the reality show intervention, which I think is the kind of um, archetype of this, you know, what you're meant to do is you're meant to gather, so everyone who knows the addict gathers the addict and they threaten them. They say, if you don't go to rehab and shape up, we're going to throw you out, we're going to cut you off, right? So you don't go to this model mm-hmm. that doesn't work, and by the way, it fails for 80% of people who try it, but you don't go to that. So, so this false idea of rehab is this kind of, well, if you really want it, you'll do that and you'll be okay. Um, and, and, but more importantly, and this really happened to think about the people in my life, you know, I kind of just realized everything I'd learned about connection, that that model of treating addicts is the worst thing you can do. It's, it's importing the, model, mod, the, the logic of the drug war into our private lives. It's saying to people, you know, the, the, your, connection and, your connections and bonds and love are the only route you'll ever get out of addiction, right? And mm-hmm. what it's saying is we'll take those connections and threaten them and make them contingent. So what mm-hmm. I've tried to do, and I can't say I do it consistently, and I can't say it's easy, is to kind of be more Portuguese, which is to say to the people in my life who are addicts, you know, I love you whether you're using or you're not using, and I'm on your side, and if you need me, I'll try to come and sit with you and be with you. Um, and I think mm-hmm. perhaps I don't want to present that as the, you know, you have to have that at both the personal level and that philosophy needs to inform us at a political and social level as well. I'm not, I don't want to imply, you know, people can just love an addict out of addiction in a difficult situation. But I think ultimately that philosophy or the evidence just that's the only way we're going to get, bring addicts back to us and get people through this. Mm-hmm. Now, I don't know if you've ever heard of the craft program developed by Robert Myers at the University of New Mexico. It's the Community Reinforcement and Family Training, CRAFT is the acronym, um, which actually has evidence-based ways of helping your loved one to change his behavior. It's quite different than the intervention confrontation. It's it's like the opposite. It's more like motivational interviewing. Um, but, you know, it's actually having this, a discussion, a dialogue. It's very effective. It's been tested in clinical trials, much more effective than the intervention. I, I know a little bit about that, but I'm keen to learn more about it. I think it's, there are very, one of the things that will happen is the drug war ends, and it is ending, and they tell the story and chasing the screen of lots of places where the drug war is ending, where, is that you will have experimentation and you will have different models being tried in different places, and some will work and some won't. But what we've had for a century is effectively one model, right? Or two at best. Mm -hmm. We've had brutal punishment, and then you've had, in the cracks of that brutal punishment, uh, some well-intentioned treatment based on one, just one model. And what you're starting to see now is more experimentation, more attempts to think differently, and I think that's hugely valuable and important. Uh, and I think we need we need a lot more of that experimentation. It's hard to experiment when you know you've basically got you know just one brutal model and anyone who's deviating from it is a criminal. Um, but as we as the world opens and that's beginning to happen because of these extraordinary movements uh, of, of, of citizens across the world, I think we will see alternatives. 
Mm-hmm. One of my biggest fears in the U.S., I mean, we've had treatment in the U.S., which are just horrible. They torture people. As I said, they've locked people in dog cages, left them in the sun. They've forced men to uh, dress in women's clothes for a month, forced them to wear diapers. These, um, Some of these things were have been outlawed for adults, but they're still going on for teenagers. Um, and these kind of harsh, punitive treatments that are as bad or worse than things that happen in prison and not only that, but at least in prison you have a sentence. Uh, some of these treatments have no end. And I, you know, one of my concerns is that these are going to be the dominant model. This seems to be what Robert DuPont is supporting. He wants people in treatment indefinitely, and he seems to want no human rights for drug users. You know, they've lost their rights by using drugs, apparently. Um, yeah, he's a scary guy. I interviewed Robert, uh, I interviewed Robert DuPont for my, for my book, and... Um it was very disturbing. You know, as you say that, I keep thinking about a person that I got to know quite well from my book who was just the antithesis of this. And I think I met a lot of amazing people, but one of the people I most admired, and that's saying something, um, in the year in the year 2000, there was this um, homeless street addict in Vancouver called Bud Osborne who was watching his friends die all around him. He lived on a post Hello, are you still there? I'm starting to, I think we're losing the call. Um, I can't hear you right now. Yeah, the Bud Osborne story, uh, he's the one that started the Insight program in Vancouver, which was a huge, important program. That uh, It's a safe injection facility where people can come and use their drugs. And it's hugely reduced overdose deaths. It had made huge changes in uh, everything. And it is one of the great models that we need for addiction treatment as we go down the road. I think I'm losing Johan Hadi now, so we're going to close the show in a minute. I want to really recommend this book, Chasing the Scream. It's a really excellent, um, great book. Um, it talks about the drug war, what we need to do to get over it, and the ways to do treatment that are effective and that work. Get this book. I'm going to end the show now because I think we've lost his audio. Thank you, everyone. We'll see you all next week. Hey, guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun, too. It's a thing, and now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun, Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino-style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere, and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.